uh, or YouTube, uh, it was the ISCON Temple in Farmington Hills. And, uh, you know, there was that sound guys, you know, it's like Indians, but they, uh, you know, so they have events and there are speakers or, or you know, people would bring their sound equipment, set it up. And it's a, you know, important skill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you promote for any big, big artists that came through? No, no. I mean, for Jewish music, some people would have heard of, but outside oh. of Jewish music, uh, no one that anyone would have heard of. Uh, have you heard of uh, Modest Yahoo? Yeah, I met him, but like I, I mean, he already signed for Sony. Yeah, I, uh, I I met him before he signed for Sony. I went to one event, but he was already very big. Although we did uh, rent out it, I I was lived in New York for a decade, and we did rent out a few places that uh, like we we had rented out BB King and CBGB on. Uh, I mean, it's not that expensive or difficult to rent them out and, and it was based on size like CGB GB if you're familiar for that one I don't think so actually no they're, no they're one of the most popular like grunge uh heavy metal places a lot of the major bands in New York played there but they only hold like 200 people or okay. even less so, so I was saying you could uh for like a $500 deposit and in tickets you could rent them out or like BB King Highland Ballroom um okay. but we did uh Jewish bands that uh, you only really only Orthodox Jews would have heard of, but in New York City, there's a uh, enough that we feel you know get a few hundred people into you uh, into a club, but uh, that we could rent out popular oh. uh, you know places like you know BB Kings. If if uh, I don't know if you're you're ever in New York or I've been one time, just one time actually, <laughs> uh, New York City, I should say, yeah. I moved in Detroit. I got, I got, I, I did, uh, like, you know, Hinduism. So I used to like promote, uh, traveling gurus from India. They come here. <laughs> nice. But so, I mean, it's a, like from the technical aspects, the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's a different style of music and speaker, but, uh, you know, the, your idea, you're going to, you know, have musicians set up, a you know, set up some equipment, rent a hall. And I mean, these were all free events. It was different structure than like buying tickets. It was sponsored and free, but, uh, I enjoy event promotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's really cool. Yeah, that I mean that's kind of like sales. I know we were talking about that earlier. Oh, that I that part I refuse to do. Yeah, like, oh, really? <laughs> right. I mean, unfortunately, most of it is selling tickets. Oh, and yeah. On the low level, uh, like the bands usually have to sell their own tickets, mm -hmm. and so like that part I didn't do. Like I was saying, like we we like I I would lug the equipment, you know, even like. Uh, broker the deal go to the bar get the tickets and it's all it's a really bad business on the low end because like generally you lose money and everyone thinks you're making money so like you know at the end of the day you know, like there's so many people that get cut and need to get paid that uh you could you rent out a club sell 200 tickets and still make no money mm-hmm and you know, even personally lose money. Like you're saying, I do all this work to organize the concert, and it cost me money. You know, because by the time you, you the tickets and everything, and and no one believes that, so they're all upset and thinking that you're like skimping off their money. And uh, I mean, so there's a potential to you know make it big, but uh, but it's it's still kind of a, a fun thing to do, and especially if you like. Uh, yeah, I got into streaming. When I first got into streaming, I was hoping to move into uh, public events. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I would still be interested in doing that, but uh, like I like debating. I'm not sure if you saw like uh, maybe it's something like Ukraine. I'm not an expert in that, but mm-hmm. uh, you like I, I like debating against evolution. Or I watched that one. On, I uh, wanted to ask you about that today, actually. Yeah. And uh, but but that would be something that like yeah I would uh, I would even you know like pay money in my own pocket to organize an event like Wayne State University of Michigan, mm-hmm. rent a room. Uh, you know, advertise it, bring in speakers that uh, we, you wouldn't be tickets. But I, n- I never really uh, you got to doing that, and that, and that could be depressing or something because like uh, no one might show up. You know, if you, you, like uh, University of Michigan, you, you have, if you have a student club active, they could get access to a room. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not sure I, I'm even connected to know a student club, but. Uh, yeah, some like you know, maybe you could get in the union or one of the one of the student rooms that could even hold fifty, hundred people, and uh, you know, make a bunch of flyers, hang it out, and uh, hope that people show up for the event. Yeah, I, I'd work together with you if you wanted to try something like that. But uh, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, you know, sometimes be depressing to be like a failure. You could uh, you know, organize for months and then no one shows up. Well, I. I have two thoughts on that, uh, but really quick, David, I just want to give you, because I, I actually started r- recording already, um, I want to give you a proper introduction uh, to everybody out there. Um, my name is Chris, this is Chitash, and today, again, joined by a very special guest, somebody who I just happened to meet, and lo and behold, lives very close near me, and I'm glad we got together. Uh, David from the YouTube channel, Duvid, is that how to properly pronounce that yeah duvid Vaforos. I'm, I'm david kelton here in southfield michigan uh civil engineer duvid uh is the yiddish of david i studied in jerusalem in new york uh a hasidic jew i'd kind of always wanted to be a rabbi but it never worked out so i ended up a civil engineer u of m alumni and i started my youtube page kind of just to largely to teach Judaism at the beginning, like teach people how to say prayers or uh, you promote Judaism in uh, educational uh, sense. And then from there, I moved on to all sorts of streaming and uh, educational content. So I kind of created like this alternative uh, internet public intellectual that, uh, you know, I guess who I'd like to be in real life, but uh, in Mm -hmm. real life, I'm kind of a boring property manager, but uh, like I constantly thinking about things and studying things and having opinions. So, uh, you know, I, I started streaming and, uh, you know, putting out content and I just went with the, you know, the moniker, uh, you know, du- Duvid. <laughs> I, um, I do have a couple thoughts, but really quick, the two things I wanted to mention from that we were talking about just earlier on the uh, failure and this reminds me of I used to be a stand-up comedian and I used to do stand-up comedy open mics and shows in this area and how you describe the potential for promoting an event like that you're describing and the potential to have it you know not be what you expected that was me every single day not every single day but every single uh, night almost every single night when I would go out to open mics is nobody shows up and you're there you get so prepared for it and you get very hyped up to go out and perform in front of people and there's maybe only a couple people but you still have to go out there and perform and 
Ah, uh, it was very disappointing a lot of nights, I will say. <laughs> yeah, well, well, at least you have a day job, so. You know, that's, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but don't don't give up your dreams. You know, a lot of people uh, succeed, and there's alternative methods, you know, like the YouTube channel, the mm-hmm. slow growth. I'm somewhat infamous for being anti-humorist. I'm not sure if you studied the philosophy of humor, and, and there's various opinions that Humor is actually like a degenerate quality, which uh, I basically never laugh and uh, will sometimes make the argument that uh, laughter is a sign of poor character. But uh, we, don't, we don't have to discuss that. But if you want to do it at oh, some, some point, it's a, it was actually that historical precedence. And if you look into, I think, uh, Aristotle, some of the Greeks, uh, some of the theologians had the opinion that uh, your humor is just a, a sign of poor character. I'm not going to laugh this entire time that I'm here then, David. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you, no, you can be as humorous as you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> in my YouTube. Uh, but yeah, I encourage you. I, I like you got a YouTube channel and, mm-hmm. and you're a public intellectual because uh, like I was telling about, about my father who's a, a doctor. He loves reading, has a big library, Yeah. but really has no one to share this stuff with. So you're just uh, constantly reading and thinking about things. So when I first you know, got on YouTube and saw the technology i thought like yeah that's kind of awesome you could find uh people interested in the same subject and create uh groups and communities discussions uh you know even uh, your book clubs or uh, yeah. t- topical clubs oh yeah um one other thing i don't want to lose this point uh on, on the music industry that you were talking about uh, this is it's funny you bring this up because i interviewed a entertainment lawyer who helps people when they are getting ready to sign record deals with you know major record labels or the the big according to him there's really like three major uh, record companies and he advises them on it and we talked about how difficult it is to make it in in that business and how you have to be like kind of very careful because you can easily get uh, taken advantage of, basically. And, yeah, it was very eye-opening for me to talk to him about that. I just I wanted to get that out there, too, before. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced stuff like that with uh, music promotion. Well, no, unfortunately, none of the people I worked with uh, were even close to uh, you're getting big enough. You know, so I, I, I did music promotion in New York City, with almost exclusively Jewish music and Orthodox Jewish music, which in New York there you know there might be half a million Orthodox Jews. So uh, in the in the Jewish business, uh, you know, we rented out clubs and did concerts, and like I was telling you, we lost money on those. They were fun to do, and we even rented out a few you know, main main clubs. But the actual Jewish musicians that make a living, they make their living doing you know weddings and bar mitzvahs. In a sense, there's your weddings and bar mitzvahs all the time, and you could make uh, your good money as a wedding and bar mitzvah band. Okay. Um, but uh, like the clubs or events, um, in the Jewish business, there's only a few really days the whole year where the, you know, kind of like holidays where people will go out to a concert that would be profitable. And even if you have like a hit record, uh, it's unlikely to sell you know, tens of thousands, uh, you know, tops. So you mentioned like Matis Yahoo is yeah, maybe the one exception of someone who crossed over 
and he wasn't doing traditional Jewish music. He was doing like reggae and then crossed over and then and then you know people yeah. followed Matisse who he actually uh, left and stopped being Hasidic. So that would be like an example of uh, you know a bit the negative side that uh, you know all of a sudden he you know he's this Hasidic uh, singer and then uh, and then he you know stops being Hasidic once he uh, comes to fame. But uh, you know the technical aspects of uh, the business were the same, but the the up end on mm. the economics that if you're a good Jewish wedding band, you could make a good living at it, but that's about it. Okay, I see. And I apologize to him for mispronouncing his name because I believe I pronounced it Mod- Modest Yahoo. I, I did do a few uh, rappers, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, like it's extremely competitive and difficult in the business, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, none of them went on to become profitable. But but at the same time, you could have minor successes. You have uh, you could get your CD played in a club. You could get in a rap battle. You could meet famous people. But uh, yeah, to actually being at the point where you're going to get signed by a label and a big contract is a, a huge hurdle to uh, get over. And then yeah, also like Detroit in the, the like uh, African American culture, New York City, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's people selling CDs on every corner. There's people oh, yeah. you know renting out clubs and uh, you know there's a little business like buying beats and studio time. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know, there's a lot of minor successes, getting you know, getting a, a little money raised up or, or a good event, getting some studio time, getting a few songs, maybe getting in front of a label. But uh, you know, the, the success level to actually uh, you know, get a deal is uh, extremely difficult, and uh, I w- you know, wouldn't even recommend it. Like, so, I, so I said we lost money doing it, but we enjoyed the music, mm-hmm. and so it was kind of like we, you know, like wouldn't it be cool if we had. Jewish bands playing in major clubs in Manhattan, and we were able to achieve it, but uh, you know, it cost us money to do it. Mm. And the okay. bands also saying the bands that were successful, uh, it wasn't profitable, you know, but although it might be somewhat the highlight of their, you know, like uh, I'm mean, not like the highlight, but it's saying that they, that they, uh, you know, if all you do is weddings and bar mitzvahs, to, you know, playing like a major club, uh, you know, a few times, even if it cost you money, mm-hmm. uh, you know, might, might be like a highlight of the career. Oh, that, that's that's really cool that you did that. It could um, be the same for comedy or something like com- that. Yeah, where, where you, you could pay to get yourself in front of a big crowd or investment or do something uh, in in the way where uh, I'm not sure if it's the same as music, like selling tickets and standing on street corners, uh, you know, like handing out CDs or telling jokes like that. But uh, mm-hmm. or if there's you basically ways to. Uh, I mean, not to get too far. I don't know what exactly you wanted to talk about, but just. Uh, when when you rent a club, you usually have to guarantee selling a certain amount of tickets yeah. to the bar. So if it's like a 500-seat stadium, usually have to buy up front like 200 tickets. And so a that lot of sense. times you'll let the opening act, who might be nobodies relatively, uh, you'll be like, okay, you want to open for us, buy 50 tickets. In the sense like, okay, like even as a comedian, like, okay, we booked uh, you know, B.B. King or something like that. And, uh, you know, they hold like 500 people and we had to guarantee 250 seats buy the tickets up front that even if we don't sell them we're going to take a loss on that and so we would sell you the right to be the opening act for 50 tickets and so if you were willing to buy the 50 tickets even if uh you know like only your mother showed up uh you know you could have been the opening act and uh, you know so that there's also some with the social dynamic where you could have like people like 
you know, like spoiled rich kids or something like that. Like their their mom bought fifty tickets for them, and they're the opening act. Uh, but that's just the business deal because you know if you have to put up two thousand dollars to book the stadium, and uh, you know, and someone gives five hundred dollars for the tickets, you, you know, like that that's you know, part of the promotional business. So probably also for comedy works like that. Oh yeah, I, that that parallels what I saw in the comedy world as well. Um, it's yeah, it's funny how things things kind of cross over into many realms i really quick i wanted to ask you this because the first as we were talking before we started recording the first time i saw you was on uh dpa's channel defense politics asia uh led by wyatt who i actually interviewed uh on my podcast and i saw you on the open mic panel on his channel and I was just wondering if you could uh, just kind of speak to Wyatt. And, you know, I know Wyatt. I, I met him and I talked to him and um, just kind of like how you initially got connected with him and um, like what you think of his content. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Wyatt. He's a nice guy, great content. Um, generally, I'm anti-war, anti-interventionist. Not, not, like, I would examine these things from uh, – a moral perspective, not necessarily trying to figure out who the good guy and bad guys are. I'm also a chess player, chess coach, so just kind of like analyzing possible scenarios and saying it doesn't necessarily matter who's right or who's wrong, mm. more likely what, what's going to happen. But right right when the war in Ukraine started, uh, yeah, I was surprised like anybody that I didn't think it was, you know, when President Biden announced there was the troop buildup and then they invaded. And, uh, you know, I was shocked and, and I wanted to find out what was happening and I, I'm a you computer geek, uh, and uh, you know, so I was looking on international news and media for content, and I came across Wyatt in Defense Politics Asia within like the first week of the war because I was on what's happening on the ground, and and I knew enough to know whatever the news sources were telling us was at least heavily filtered to you know, biased to inaccurate, and so Wyatt. You know, I'm also a civil engineer, and he was using uh, um, a GIS, Global Information System, mapping. I thought that was really cool. And in the beginning, he was trying to get information from all sources, and and, uh, and he was, like, using fire maps. And I don't know if you remember that, but I mean, because there's various sources. How are you going to figure out what's going on? So there's, like, uh, global satellites that just measure fire data and he was using all sorts of uh techniques and data to try to figure out like where's their fighting going on who's doing the bombing who's winning and uh you know at that point he only had a few thousand subs and i joined his discord and i started speaking to him and i asked him for an interview and like, like you know kind of was similar to what we we're talking about event promo promotion mm -hmm. i built up my youtube page to almost like two thousand subs mm -hmm. and uh you have to put out good content and you have to like, you know, introduce your audience to interesting people. And like my personality that, uh, yeah, I thought why it would be an interesting person that my audience, uh, might be interested in or growing my audience. So I asked him, uh, to come on my channel for an interview. And that was like a month into the war where he had less than 10,000 subs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we talked, and I was just interested about his uh, business at that point of the interview was mostly about how he gets his information and his use of global information systems. Now a lot of people have maps, and uh, you know if people saw the interview, 
but I think Wyatt in Defense Politics Asia has one of the better. Uh, you're just on the ground, like you know, he has a map, and he's got uh, you know bubbles you could click on and see data, and then he connects you straight to the source. And like, well, this is what the Ukrainian uh, you know, release said. This is what the Russian release said. And then you know, maybe you could even have like links to uh, you know, at the beginning like visual visual data of like you know if, like there's uh, actual film footage of of some of the things going on. So I thought it was you know, rather brilliant what he was uh, you know doing just from a technological civil engineering someone who you know I've worked with global information system for civil engineering and uh, so I interviewed him. Mm-hmm. And I, I followed his channel. I still follow his channel regularly because, like, when I want to know day to day what's happening, uh, you know, even you know, like I read the New York Times almost every day, and I watch CNN and the various news sources. Um, but it's very difficult to know what's going on. So you want to know like facts on the ground. Mm-hmm. What's the best knowledge? And uh, then maybe like six months ago, he started doing these open mic panels. Yeah. And I'm not really politically active, but but the you know, God forbid, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. You know, like I, th- I think this is going to, uh, you know, getting out of control, and we got a lot of people making really bad decisions in terms of escalating. So when it first started, you know, like I, w- I was like, you know, like whatever platform I, I said, I wasn't like taking sides or moralistic, and and you know, saying like we should be neutral and should de-escalate it. Whatever we do, de-escalate the conflict, do not escalate it. And I thought that the, you know, the U.S. that we're actively by choosing a side, we're escalating it, you know, especially by arm, arming it. And so I've joined a few panels, uh, you know, somewhat to try to, uh, you know, find some sort of understanding, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on, gather information, uh, but also just, the, you know, kind of put through like some sort of voice of reasoning that, uh, you know, like uh, we, we got to uh, stop the battle and de-escalate it. And, uh, you know, so it's very, it's very problematic. I'm not, I'm not an expert in uh, you know, international politics or, or, or the war, but uh, you know, like I very strongly feel we should uh, be de-escalating, not escalating. And uh, you know, this Wyatt in Singapore is some of the best information you could get. What's out there as uh, you know, in the U.S. news sources because we're biased in the sense we're we're basically on the side of Ukraine. We're arming Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We're sanctioning Russia, and not in the sense like I'm 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 not making political opinions about what we should or shouldn't be doing. I just want to know the facts of what's actually happening. And so that's why I came on to Wyatt. Uh, and obviously he's in Singapore. You know, he's got Asian perspective. Yeah. And they have their own politics. And, and he's also neutral. And, uh, you know, like, theoretically, news is supposed to be neutral. So, uh, you know, that perspective, like, you know, like I turned to him just to uh, find out what's going on. I popped on his panel every once in a while to, uh, you, you know, like if you watch his panels regularly, he's got, you know, the wild Siberian, uh, mostly a U.S. dissident. So, so like, I don't know if they t- lean pro-Russian, but they definitely lean that the Russians are winning in terms of the analysis. They're not necessarily saying they're rooting for one side or the other, mm-hmm. but uh, their assessment, uh, you know, that of, of uh, the actual reality of what's happening. And there's a lot of uh, military people that are dissident and also a global opinion. And then as I was also made a chess player. I played online like Lee Chess. I was captain of an Israeli team mm-hmm. and we were part of a league with Russia. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of Russians in Israel and Israel has also tried to remain uh, neutral and has much closer ties with Russia that it hasn't uh, severed. So like, uh, you know, the world chess champion just finished uh, recently and 
and he was a Russian player who ended up losing to the Chinese player, but he had to not play under the Russian flag. And the Russian player who was pro uh, Karyakin was pro made pro Russian statements was kicked out of the world championship. Oh wow! And uh, your Russians uh, are very dominant in chess, uh-huh. so it, it was uh, you know just on the chess server it was very uh, you could feel the tension. In, in you know in the, in the war and even in uh, um, you know when the chess server actively started banning Russian accounts and you get these you know top players that keep on coming back under new identities mm-hmm. or the you know like the chat room the chat you know people mostly come to play chess but the chat rooms uh, you know the chess server the French server Lee Chess that I played on is uh, maybe like twenty percent Russian ten percent a lot of Russian players and so like it dominates the comment section in. Uh, you know, almost all chess tournaments. Wow. No, and I, I, I do agree with you that I, I really like Wyatt's content and DPA's uh, channel, um, and I recommend it to like some of my friends when they they ask or they wonder, you know, what's going on in that part of the world. So, um, yeah, shout out to Wyatt, um, great guy, and appreciate the work that he's doing. Um, David, I wanted to ask you about about your YouTube channel and did you say earlier um or I can't remember if you said this earlier your most popular content that you have is it the like the Jewish related studies that you cover on your YouTube channel well I created my YouTube channel almost 10 years ago and oh, wow. I started you know IRL recording videos and uploading them and uh, actually you know promoting the downtown synagogue and then I was in University of Michigan. I was part of the Bhakti Yoga Society and doing like Hindu events and chess clubs. And uh, you know, I volunteered for True Transport Riders United. And, and uh, um, so for about five years, I had uh, basically just everything I participated in. I took videos and uploaded them. Okay. And uh, you know, a lot of it had, was... Uh, Jewish community. Some of it was uh, teaching people prayers, and then uh, about five years ago, I got started in streaming, where uh, you're from my house live streaming. Mm-hmm. Actually, through a man in Hollywood, Luke Ford, and, and I, got, um, I was actually you know just after finishing University of Michigan, and it was when. Uh, Richard Spencer was coming to University of Michigan. I don't know if you remember that. No, no. 2017, Richard Spencer is from the alt-right who... Uh, oh, okay. I've and heard so, you know, like, they had... The, after, you know, he had supported Trump, and Trump had made, so to say, overtures, dog whistles to white nationalists. And uh, in order to, you know, the big tent that led, led Trump into office... Mm-hmm. And although Trump had a diverse, multicultural Republican coalition that voted for him, it included many white nationalists. And so you had, like, you know, the alt-right and uh, you now the names like Nicholas Fuentes, Richard uh, Spencer, uh, you know, like the January 6th, uh, um, uh, Alex, uh, Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. And so Richard Spencer was doing a college tour after that. And... Uh, and it was extremely controversial. Like, and he had uh, won a court case that you know he came to. Uh, he had won a court case that he had been allowed to come to University of Michigan, and there, there it was uh, walkouts. Like thousands of people 
walked out of classes and, and didn't want him speaking there, wow. you know, because like you know, no no Nazis, no hate, or uh, you know, various. Uh, and he spoke at uh, Michigan State, and there there were almost like riots, and then he spoke at uh, I think Florida and Texas, and there were. Uh, um, like they declared a state of emergency, and then they had like the Charlottesville Unite the Right. I don't know if you, you followed any, any of this stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, even said President Biden that's what caused him to run for office, and the President Trump, who had uh, you know, largely taken out of contents the very fine people on both sides of the remove, you know, God forbid, the general, the statue removal. Um, but uh, yeah, I was curious who this Richard Spencer guy was. Mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, I feel okay if he's a white supremacist or something, but yeah, what's the big deal? Like, let him speak, uh, you know, like, uh, or I, I didn't, you know, I, I live in majority, I mean, uh, Chris, uh, Chris is at my house now. I live in a majority African-American neighborhood. I've always been in diverse places. Uh, it, it didn't hit me that the threat of, uh, like, white nationalism was such a big deal that, uh, um, so this convert to Orthodox Judaism, Luke Ford, in Hollywood was uh, was interviewing Richard Spencer and 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 then you know a lot of these kind of like names were at that the, the unite the right who were uh, they call them counter semitism as opposed to anti semitism because a lot of them strongly reject the label as they, of being anti semitic they 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 would say that they're you know they have no problem with Jews individually but they're against what they feel that Jews are doing collectively to society. And a lot of them, for the, for them, that focuses on multiculturalism and immigration, which generally, I've always been, you know, like a, a pro, a conservative, a libertarian leaning, who's pro multiculturalism and immigration. So you're conservative leaning, but I agree with the left on multiculturalism and immigration. So I I, I came on to uh, this man Luke Ford in Hollywood, who was a, a streamer, who was interviewing. Uh, a lot of the you know big names in counter-Semitism. And, uh, you know, I started talking to him. I, I, po- I popped up in his chat, and uh, he actually, you know, he liked me. We talked. He was into Judaism. And uh, he was also a very anti-immigration activist. So even though he's Orthodox Jewish, he, he uh, uh, was very opposed to immigration. And, uh, but we, we debated that in, in, in the beginning. Uh, so I, I got involved in, Streaming and most of my first streaming was debating with uh, counter semites, and uh, you know, so relatively, a lot of these guys are very popular. So like, I, you know, like I had a small YouTube channel, and even today my content is relatively small. But uh, yeah, I appeared in a number of debates where I was taking pro immigration, pro multiculturalism, and a specifically you know Jewish attitude, uh, pro Jewish attitude, and. Uh, Defending, uh, you largely, so to say, that uh, like, yeah, I'm Jewish and I do support multiculturalism and immigration. So I, I, I uh, had quite a few debates with uh, your relatively big names in those spheres, like people I, I hadn't really heard of, but you know, like for relatively for streaming, these people had significantly bigger audiences than me. Some of like, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, oh, wow. viewed their content. So I actually built up my own channel through debating against uh, you know some of those people on their own networks. I didn't do much of that on my own content, on my own channel. And then YouTube, uh, you know, God forbid, after uh, the Christchurch shooting in New, in New Zealand, YouTube uh, 
started going much stricter on their standards and they kicked off uh, um, you're really the majority of the people from YouTube. Even at that point, some of the most popular content on YouTube were these, what they call blood sports debates. There's a guy like you know, Borsky and Ethan Ralph and Jean-Francis Greppi, and, and they have, uh, you know, he actually just passed away, the, the um, Jerry Springer, but you know, like Jerry Springer, where he'd, you know, he'd have like, uh, yeah. you know, like blacks and KKKs and people be throwing chairs like that. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> I don't know if you remember Jerry Springer or something. I mean, he had all types oh, yeah. of content, but yeah. it'd be like regular content where you know, just be like, uh, you know, let's put you know Jews and blacks and KKKs on this, on this, on neo Nazis on the stage together and see what happens. And on, like Jerry Springer would be, you know, fights almost every episode. So they when the before this main censorship, that was some of the most popular programming on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up as, I guess one of the one of the Jewish participants. And uh, it actually, you know, helped build my, build my channel. So when I first started, I had probably like three hundred subs on my channel, and uh, you know, after then I got over, you know, probably like fifteen hundred of my um, subs came from people who saw me debating that were sympathetic to my position. Um, you know, from largely the opposition people that were you know, watching this other content and saw me. Uh, debating that and I haven't really done that in the last uh two years. I mean one thing that almost all those people uh controversial content has been removed from YouTube. So occasionally I'll get asked to come on like uh, a third party like Odyssey, Rumble, and I'll I'll do a you know debate against uh uh and, you know, Adam Green is uh, one of one of the few people I still keep in contact with and he's uh you know adamant that he's not anti Semitic but he's very um, into like Zionist conspiracies and, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, the role of, uh, and he's largely anti-Christian also. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk and he'll ask me about, uh, you know, source material and he'll like, you know, drill me. He's like, does Judaism believe this or not? Like, does it say this in your books? And, and so I actually kind of enjoy, enjoy that. Like, uh, in, uh, but, uh, some of that content garnered hundreds of thousands of views. So, so even on my own channel, um, you know, God forbid, uh, the guy who calls himself Handsome Truth, who's now is my most viewed content. You know, arguing with one of the most uh, prominent counter Semites in America right now, who's uh, you know going around uh, dropping uh, flyers. Uh, and and I had actually been you know like an anti censorship. Uh, defender you know saying that generally you know libertarian and pro-free speech and so probably the majority of jews to some extent favor censorship and and, uh they don't want this stuff on the platform so you're just being not not say like a super prominent jew you know i studied to be a rabbi involved in the jewish community but just willing to talk to people that uh, i ended up speaking to you know god forbid like a, a lot of uh Counter Semites, and uh, some of that's my more popular con- uh, you know, content. And, and okay. because it's, I mean, one is controversial, and some it might be the type of questions that uh, are more popular. You know, they want to see the, someone, you know, really get drilled and ask the difficult questions. So I, I put myself oh, yeah. up for that, and that's uh, although it's that you know certainly it's it makes up a small fraction of my content, but in terms of viewership, that's by far my most uh, viewed content. Okay, very cool. In speaking of these debates, 
and I know earlier we mentioned, and I, I was watching a bit of this this past week, you did a debate on evolution with somebody. Joanne on my own channel. Yeah. And I was wondering, could you briefly kind of talk about that? Because I thought that was super interesting. It's something I don't think I see debates on that like so often. Um, which which side of the debate were you and Joanne on? I was arguing against evolution. I called it evolution on trial. And uh, you know, this woman is a friend of mine, fellow chess player, chess coach, who has a background in like biomedical engineering. Okay. And so um, there's a channel called Modern Day Debate. And I've I, heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's probably the biggest debate channel in in the country. And uh, I mean, only like 100,000 subs, like regular debates. It might be like monk debates or IQ or something, but they don't have, uh, you know, regular content. So they, they, they have a few times a week. And evolution is definitely one of their big topics. Um, yeah, I, I went to Israel. I, I grew up in kind of secular. I went to uh, the Roper School here in the suburbs, and my father's a doctor. I largely believed in evolution, and I went to Israel, and actually, like a you know, Orthodox rabbis convinced me against evolution, and uh, now called middle of the road. But uh, you know, generally, I'm skeptical of evolution, and I'm I'm, I'm not like a strict young earth creationist, but I'm skeptical of evolution. And, uh, yeah, I focus on the heart problem of consciousness, the origin of consciousness and, um, that we have a soul in, in various issues. So ev evolution is one of the, certainly the most con contentious issues in America. So in America, statistically, I, I think the last poll about 40% of 40% of Americans actually believe in intelligent design so it's it's a, a huge wow. mismatch because in university like over 95 percent of university uh professors uh believe in evolution and uh, you know so it's a huge political issue because there's a huge divide between highly educated people and the general population because it's almost split down the line of the general population however you know say among the highly educated specifically the people highly educated in biology, uh, evolution is almost universally accepted. And then like in medical schools, uh, in you know, biology, biological engineering departments, uh, biological sciences are basically taught as evolutionary, you know, like medicine, uh, you know, you know so my, my dad's alumni University, Michigan Medical School, evolutionary medicine is one of the foundational principles of modern medicine is evolution. So it's uh, certainly one of the most common debate issues, uh, but it's also, it's a difficult issue because most educate most of the people who are against it are uneducated and the people who are for it are educated. And so, uh, you know, like I, I have a reasonable education and, and I'm not, I'm not promoting, uh, you, when I, I don't uh, promote intelligent design or, uh, you know, I just, uh, largely try to argue that we have a soul and that uh, science, materialism, evolution cannot account for consciousness. Mm. And uh, so, I, you know, once I had my YouTube channel, like I said, you got to put regular content. I like debates. So I'm always trying, like, I mean, if you wanted to debate or something like that, I would invite you on my channel. We could uh, 
do a debate and also kind of intellectualism. I, I told uh, this one, Joanna was actually in you know Minnesota. Um, you know, it caused you to work, you know, make like a PowerPoint and do some research. And uh, it, it's a popular genre of um, YouTube. I mean, generally debate is in the U.S. popular specifically due to elections and democracy because like you have to vote and you have to know what the candidates think mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the candidates think on the various issues and then you know about the issue through a debate. Um, although debate is definitely valuable on all issues and in university, I would say evolution is probably one of the most demanded. But if I, you know, if you're in university, you would be like laughed out, like what moron, you know, doesn't believe in evolution. Yeah. Although, however, in you know, like Michigan, like the red blue divide, uh, uh, you know, say like the Trump base and a lot of the you know contention because you're probably in you know parts of the red divide, uh, probably majority of people are don't don't believe in evolution, and you know things like homeschooling. Or the fear of the federal government, or or the, all the stuff in the U.S. going going on with uh, uh, school boards, or possibly uh, um, you approach it on like homosexuality, transsexuality, is related to evolution. That they're saying that uh, the you know the the liberal policies today re- regarding identity and, and sexuality is judged from an evolutionary perspective as opposed to a religious perspective so it's a a huge political issue and uh you know, so if you're on a debate platform um you know so like i said like you know among educated people i mean you're, you're u of m alumni you say like uh you know that you'd be you know, laughed out of the place if you said you didn't believe in evolution yeah. however like if you went to uh you know i don't know where you're from or your background or if you have family like in you know rural places you're probably the majority of people are skeptical of evolution and they think that uh you know it's part of like the satanic uh, university uh you know conspiracy to turn you know to turn people against god mm-hmm. yeah the, the divide that you speak of kind of reminds me of a book that you mentioned to me which i read the bell curve by um <coughs> charles charles murray charles murray and richard hernstein which have you read that book actually yeah, I read it in high school. In fact, in fact, I, yeah. I it was at the Roper School that uh, would, had IQ tests where you actually was supposed to test over 130 IQ, although it was very liberal, and uh, they had like an emergency um, assembly where the biology teacher who uh, he was born pre-war pre-war Germany and from like the Frankfurt School, Columbia University mm-hmm. of Anthropology, he, like tried to debunk. The teachings in the bell curve that uh you know so i, I remember extremely clearly you know, like i was in high school and the book came out it, it was uh uh-huh. you know extremely contentious and, and um iq actually comes up uh in, in terms of uh you know the alt-right and uh nationalist leaning uh um you know the bell curve type uh you know, pe- people who are worried about the demographic change in america are it's it's still one of the biggest issues that is brought up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I have I've heard people say because so that book came out in like 1994, 1995, something like that, and I've heard people talk about okay, extrap. We're in twenty twenty three right now. Did is the stuff that Charles Murray talked about in the book 
that's like almost 30 years ago, ago now, is it starting to happen or is it just not enough big of a time scale? And I don't know the right answer, but I know I've heard people kind of um, ask those questions. Did you go to U of M when he spoke? I, I think it was like three years ago. Oh, no, I wasn't there. No. I'm sorry. I mean, Richard Spencer, they, they almost had riots. So, you know, he said like thousands of people oh, walked oh. out of classes. Um, although uh, you know, Ben Shapiro also tried to speak at University of Michigan. I think they had uh, you know, big protests. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles Murray spoke at University of Michigan. And, and I think they you know, protested and disrupted. Uh, you know, there were hundreds of people there, you know, like asking uh, questions. And there were protests outside. And then there were you know, people who actively disrupted. I think they even like tried to shine a projector. There's at you know at University of Michigan, so that you know a few hundred people came in and someone like shined a projector behind him, saying like anti anti things about him. Um, but uh, he's just a popular name, and obviously he was at Harvard and uh, you know Hernstein. It's I had on my YouTube channel actually this man Edward Dutton who's in Poland now from Finland, who's a big uh, IQ researcher, and. Uh, he talks about the reverse Flynn effect and the Flynn effect was uh, that IQs were getting higher mm-hmm. and, you know, studied over a period of time where IQs were increasing by a few points every decade. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so there's evidence that now we call the reverse Flynn effect. And over the last 20, 30 years that IQs have been decreasing and he's really? got kind of like these catastrophic theories of the decline of the U S due to decline in IQ and that simply, you know, like our generation, the next generation are not actually capable of running society. We're not as intelligent. Um, you know, like the racial disparities are a huge issue. You know, saying like uh, that's uh, one of the biggest issues in America, like affirmative action. And, you know, these days, besides for the black-white divide, the, the Asian divide, the demographic change now where they want to, uh, you know, get rid of uh, SAT testing uh, largely as a method to discriminate against Asians because Asians are outperforming everyone else on uh, on tests and the predictive powers. So, I mean, there's some uncomfortable realities about IQ. I was like, generally, like I'm a, a believer in the soul, and I think that in IQ intelligence is a function of the soul. That uh, that is my personal belief, and that that people could. Uh, become more intelligent. In fact, I, I teach, I'm a chess coach. I teach, teach mental techniques, memory techniques. And uh, although the um, psychographic, uh, psychometric data, IQ is the is the single best tested of all psychological theories. You know, like uh, over 120 years, they have data. You have uh, huge studies of, at this point, tens of millions of people across the world where their IQs were measured in their youth and, and tested across a lifetime and you know generally that uh, at least the psychometric data shows that iq remains relatively stable over a lifetime and that it's the single biggest factor of success in a person's life and uh in that sense like the you know the charles murray just uh writing about it so you know say so I, I could remain you know spiritual and, and, and you know, believe that you know, you could be born retarded and pray really hard and become a genius. Uh, that would be my theological position, but it would be, you know, a scientific as it doesn't match uh, the evidence. 
However, um, you know, the contentiousness of the implications to what to do uh, in society or... Uh, so I, I didn't watch your series. I know you covered the book. I have... Yeah, a little bit. Probably, yeah. I might even have like 10 books on IQ. And, uh, you know, I took the great courses and all the latest uh, data. Although it relates back to the heart problem of consciousness in the sense that there there is no actual model to show a material mechanism of what intelligence is, how it's related to the brain. So if I said like, well, in my opinion, intelligence is not a function of the body, it's a function of the soul. And the soul is, uh, you know, potential. So anybody could actualize that. However, the data is, you know, like I said, uh, it's the single most uh, measured and recorded phenomenon. It's There's tens of millions of people have been tested and they've been measured uh, you know, over the lifetime where they have the huge studies where they, you know, I mean, in some countries or in the U.S., but basically the majority of people have IQ tests and they've measured uh, people's life outcomes over the lifetimes and the data shows that IQ remains relatively stable over a lifetime. There's not much the person could do to change it and that it's the largest indicator of at least uh, economic success. And when you were saying uh, just now, because I, I had just noted this down. So if I were to say, you know, intelligence or IQ in the brain is measured by like, or we're trying to find like a physical representation of IQ, but we can't really find that physical representation. Like we can't say, oh, the more, the more neuronal networks that you have means you have more IQ. It's more so what you're saying is it's a, comes from your soul or from your consciousness which is not something that you can just turn on an x-ray and just look and see the iq in your brain i don't know if that makes sense at all but yeah we refer to what what's called psychometric data so you can't measure the mind but you could measure the output of the mind gotcha okay and so you can't show what is happening inside the person's head when they're performing intelligent functions but you could measure the output of the mind in terms of intelligence. And so you can't show that there's a gene for IQ, but you could show that a heritability of IQ in the sense that, uh, you know, so IQ tests know over 130, 120, 130 years old. And so you could show the correlation between parental IQ and child IQ. Mm. And you could assume that's, well... It's uh, pretty high correlation, right? It's one of the highest correlations there is. Yeah. And however, there's no actual IQ gene. There's no demonstration. There's no, uh, besides correlatory evidence, that IQ is actually hereditary. I mean, there's that that strong evidence in saying the correlative, but there's no physical mechanism of IQ. In, in terms, I use the term reverse anthropomorph anthropomorphism, where you know anthropomorphism is where we uh, assign human attributes upon something non-human, like a computer or you know something inanimate um but the opposite because we understand more about how the computer works than how the human mind works and so we assume you know now that we have chat gpt and the, these various things that you saw the open ai been using it uh in in that uh you know, the computer is doing something of intelligence but we understand that process better than the human mind so when you know like we understand how chat gpt operates better than we understand how we operate and so we we assume that the process that uh, our mind is using is something similar 
to open AI, um, you know, call that a reverse anthropomorphism because, because uh, there, there's, you know, I don't call low to no evidence that our, our mind is actually using, um, you know, like Boolean logic and logic circuits that, uh, you know, I'm saying we have a bunch of neurons in our brain and obviously we get like an MRI scan and you could, uh, I've had some of those tests where, you know, they, they, you put probes on my head and they show me a bunch of pictures yeah. and at the eye scanner test where they open my eye and measure my eye movement and then ask me a bunch of questions or show me a bunch of things on a screen yeah. and they could correlate and say, well, or, or injuries like lesions where you got for people have injuries and they could no longer perform certain tasks, but it's not actually a mechanism. There's no understanding uh, even for the most simplest cognitive function of uh, what actually is happening. And so we assume that, the brain and neurons probably have some sort of like logic circuit gates and obviously you're, you're a programmer and coder. So, mm-hmm. so you, uh, but, but just that perspective, we understand that the computer works much better than the human mind. And, uh, I'm still going with the soul. That's my personal belief. And, uh, you know, so if that's the case, well, why is IQ have such high correlation to parental IQ? Um, you would say spiritually, like you would say that, uh, um, but I, I would, uh, you generally take the the approach, and uh, you know, I've said I've trained a lot of people. I'm a chess coach. I worked with all sorts of people. That uh, you know, so to say, hard work. You can increase your intelligence, um, even though the evidence is uh, against that. And I'm also pessimistic in terms. Of, you know, I'm actually you know, strong believer that uh, uh, I mean two things. One, the computer will keep on getting more intelligent, and uh, and two, where that where come to see that the brain does not produce intelligence, does not produce like the like sense perception, as we understand what the brain does. Obviously it has some, you know, control sense perception and motor control. I was pre-med for, you know, like anatomy. You could look at the human brain and see, you know, the, the, the clear wiring from all the senses and, you know, the eyes and the ear into the brain, some function of memory and some function of motor control. Uh, but uh, you just conceptually to say, well, does the brain, perform is thinking a function of the brain and so uh, i'm generally of the opinion that it's a that thinking is not a material function okay and it's funny you mentioned chat gpt because i did just recently i signed up for account on uh, chat gpt i've been using a little bit it a little bit at work i am i'm kind of impressed by it it's very it's helped me a lot in just some little problems that I have or some things that I don't know exactly what to do. And I, it, it honestly, I use this analogy. It kind of reminds me of if you've played, if you've ever played legend of Zelda and link has that fairy that follows him around. Yeah, the Nintendo. I haven't played video games since I was like a teenager, but yeah, the old Nintendo, super Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, that That's how I picture, or maybe, you know, in halo there's, I believe, the thing that uh, Master Chief has is Cortana or, you know, you just have your co-pilot there that's aiding you and assisting you with what you need. That's kind of how I view ChatGPT, not that I want ChatGPT to do my work for me, but if I run into an issue, I want it to be like my first resource. And do you foresee the, you've? I mean, I'm sure you've probably heard many people talk about the potential negatives of AI, chat GPT, what have you. 
are you do you kind of go down that route or are you of the thinking it's not really all negative this is actually kind of a positive yeah i would be neutral i mean generally i'm I'm a, a a deist i'm a believer in higher powers and yes i don't think we need to worry about uh you know just be another tool that could be the device of own self-destruction people follow my content one of my major areas of interest is uh consciousness science of consciousness in fact uh next week is the annual science of consciousness conference in sicily italy professor wow. Stuart hammerov out of arizona university of michigan is one of uh, a few institutes in michigan that has a consciousness studies department and consciousness studies informal university is part of uh the medical school in anesthesiology that there there is not a strong definition of consciousness except through anesthesiology and uh, the medical terminology for consciousness is purely related to control level function when a person is um put under anesthetics and uh, you know say that the, there's levels of anesthesiology i'm not sure if uh, you know, god forbid if you ever had surgery or something like that but uh there's levels of responsiveness and like sleep and there's certain measurements um but it's not cognitive it could be cognitive in the sense like you could be on an operating table uh, and still ask questions and, and and answer them or be given commands but not conscious to you know, realize what's happening to you or or you know, depending on the amount of drugs that's uh, and actually how these operate it's uh you know they know that certain drugs block consciousness but the actual mechanisms or how to define it is uh still unclear so uh i think people assume that science understands more about consciousness than it actually does and the actual people who study consciousness are much more likely to admit that uh we you know that remains a mystery or even uh you the what people believed i have uh you know francis crick's the astonishing hypothesis that uh I think it was written in the 80s that you know the idea was that you know very soon science was going to figure out exactly how the brain produces thought and consciousness and uh you know now 40 years later it, it uh there's been very few advances uh made on it and uh you know, people are coming to alternative perceptions from a spiritual level i would look at like the receiver model where so to say the, the brain receives consciousness from another realm as opposed to produces consciousness and then also the you know the computer realm that I say that the the idea that a brain has neural circuits like a computer, especially now that we see how much superior computers function than man, and in a sense like if a brain you know was the neurons were doing logical circuits and gates, um, then how come the computer is so much better at functioning? And mm. you know just like the danger is like you know God forbid I trust in God I'm not you know like I'm not worried about uh, the dangers of uh i'm worried about the dangers of my own action you know my own uh you know sinful behavior my own uh you know, evil heart and uh you know civilization declines it could be one of many methods and you know just like the war in ukraine you know guns are guns are tools that are, i mean generally meant for destruction but things like you know like knives or or you know they're a tool that's generally positive although it could be used to harm yeah. so uh you know the computer i'm a big computer guy computers are great tools you know, airplanes, technology, you know, I, I stream engineering, love engineering. They're all, I'm going to go to the robotic shows, automation conference at uh, Huntington 
next week. Okay. Um, you know, AI machine learning is completely revolutionizing uh, manufacture. Like Tesla uh, is probably one of the biggest users of it, but uh, almost all the modern manufacturing has, you know, robotic arms that are have machine learning embedded in it. And I think it's it's fear in the sense that okay, like I fear God. I re- I recognize there's a higher power that there's nothing I can do about. It. Like you know, I can't fight or rebel against God. God has ultimate power, and uh, you know. So I would put that in terms of modern atheism, where people think that they're the highest power, and now when you see that uh, you know that that we don't have as much control over his life as we thought we did. You know, so I, I was young, you know, chess player. So when, uh, you know, I was young enough that I was even able to beat chess computers in my youth. When they first started, like in the 80s, uh, you, you know, they had, but uh, of like market chess players, it took until like, you know, maybe the late 80s till they had, you know, marketable chess programs that were mm-hmm. expert level play. And now, you know, anybody could get a cheap download program that could beat the world champion. And, uh, you know, when it comes down to, uh, you're just a humbleness of, of like, you know, like, okay, look, you know, dude, I spent 20 years of my life reading books, 10 hours a day, and I know all this information. And you're just like, well, stay humble, you know, like, um, you know, however much power you think you have, uh, you know, there's higher forces out there. And so I think that's the your general cause of this fear over AI is, is uh, you know, people losing their sense of control. Mm. I like the way you put that. Um, now, you have... You currently are going through a series on your YouTube channel. Is it titled What is Science? Is that correct? Philosophy of Science. Oh, Philosophy of Science. Okay. I was wondering, um, can you give like a brief summary of what uh, what you talk about in that series that you're doing? Yeah, I, I have a theory that I call the multiple truth hypothesis. And it, you know, it started as a heuristic from interfaith when I was started doing Judaic-Islamic interfaith. And, you know, they call like uh, eschatology, belief what's going to happen at the end of the day, and where you have hardline, you have a Christian background? Yes, yeah. So just like, uh, there's a lot of similarities between Judaism and Christianity, but then there's some hard differences, like like what, you know, was Jesus defined, um, you say, you know, the Judaic, or say the second coming, and so you say, well, you believe in a second coming, but, you know, for Jews, they say, I believe that would be the, the first Messiah or what's going to happen. And they're just, you know, to put it out there like, this is your belief, this is my belief, and there's some incompatible claims. And so I've been doing interfaith, actually, my YouTube channel, uh, you know, the first five years, I put probably 100 interfaith videos on. Mm-hmm. And so I've I been, you know, wrestling around with this, what I called the multiple truth hypothesis from interfaith, where I was trying to take on face value people's religious claims it's okay maybe you know that's what you believe maybe maybe not and it's you know comparing it to what you know, i believe or other systems and then uh i saw there's a lot of utility to the theory and then you know i ended up you know completing my studies at university of michigan as pre-med and and uh yeah i, I got online debating um I guess I have a reasonable talent for debate, so I ended up debating against evolution quite often. And so, uh, you know, like recruiting someone, um, you know, because like, like I said, that uh, probably like half of America doesn't believe in evolution. 
However, the you know the elites almost exclusively believe in it. So you know they want someone to stand up to uh, you know the elites. So I, I became a regular, uh, and and so I saw there's a lot of uncertainty in science. So I, I wanted to apply this. You know, why I've been calling the multiple truth hypothesis to science and the question of what is truth. And so I, I was trying to go through a history of what they call the philosophy of science. And it's actually a very small field. Like people don't even realize there is a philosophy of science. University of Michigan tried to have a minor a department of philosophy of science, and it was closed down. There wasn't enough interest. There's only like five philosophy of science departments in the whole country. Oh, wow. Like in, in Germany, I think... Uh, uh, I think, you know, in Vienna, that, that uh, or Kant. But basically what happens, um, Galileo, modern science and philosophy, is, you know, kind of uh, built upon Galileo, Descartes, and Newton. And uh, um, because there was Aristotelian, Galenic science, uh, where, you know, till, till Galileo, almost all science was based on Aristotle, and uh, and then medicine was uh, you know Galen the the uh, Roman anatomist, and then you know then you William Harvey, who uh, um, you know, has the theory of, of, of blood, uh, the heart pumping blood, which was not uh, the Galenic view of what the heart did, and uh, Galileo uh, about uh, acceleration and two objects of different masses falling at the same speed. So there's the famous like Galileo. Uh, at least of legend, you know, going up in the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropping two two bodies to show they fell at the same time, which went in opposition. Um, but what happens is Galileo starts to come up with a concept of mathematical universal laws. So they didn't quite have universal laws. And uh, and then you have Cartesian dualism and Descartes you know, comes up with, uh, uh, you will call it like the unification of algebra and geometry where you have the... Um, algebraic formulas that have the on the xy plane so you could describe geometric shapes with algebraic formulas and descartes philosophically like because galileo comes into all the problems with the church mm-hmm. and so descartes separates like dualism you have the mind and spirit and then you have science which deals with the physical world and so it's not controversial to the church because saying well the church talks about the spirit and the mind and science has nothing to say about it, it only has to say about uh, the material realm. And so Descartes really the founder of claiming that there will be universal laws that operate according to mathematics. Mm. And you know, people have read Descartes. Uh, he comes up with a bunch, but they all are basically wrong. He's like a precursor to Newton. He has you know, various ideas like impulse and uh, you know, pre-Newtonian physics that's almost all experimentally incorrect. And then Newton perfects what Descartes failed at where he is able to correctly describe universal physical laws with predictive mathematics and, and he you know, uh, upgrades the Cartesian unification of uh, algebra and um, geometry with the calculus and you know so physics is describing bodies operating in space over time. Mm-hmm. And so that's, but it's based on Cartesian dualism, where science is only the purview of describing physical phenomenon, and what we call mind independent. That like an object, it's it's uh, what ha- what happens in the mind 
is independent of you know physical objects. So like it doesn't matter what you're thinking. Your car operates according to universal, predictable mathematical laws. And although you might steer your car in which direction, it has nothing to do with uh, the scientific laws of how physical objects um, operate. Okay. And and so I went over from the creation of science, the foundation of science, to modern science. So so basically, what happens? Um, I mean, you have like, you know, David Hume and Thomas Hobbes, and at the same time, like Thomas Hobbes tries to use the scientific method towards uh, um, politics and like the soft sciences, social science, and, and like the scientific method and Francis Bacon. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, so Descartes had said, you know, metaphysics is the trunk, and then you have uh, um, like philosophy or mathematics as the as the branch of the tree, and the various subfields would would, would be, as I say, mathematics is the trunk, and then the the branches would be the subfields. Mm-hmm. But the the core of science is philosophy, metaphysics. That would be the question, like what is space, what is time, and that would be you know at that point it would be the, theology because all schools, all universities really till two hundred years ago were part of the church, even University of Michigan was you know originally a theological school, oh, and okay. Kant has. Kant is like the end of the dualistic thinking where uh, and then you have like the neo-Kantians and the Vienna school and I go over in detail over this series of like the change in thought to the rise of physicalism where basically science advances enough where the the concept of where you don't need the Cartesian dualism and that, that you believe that uh, you had the you know the theologians would, you know, be the expert in mind and religion, and the scientist only had to say about material phenomenon. And then, uh, you know, the, the, you have uh, the rise of evolutionary thinking, the perfection of uh, various, the unification of science through the conservation of energy, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, the Vienna School and quantum mechanics, and uh, we're, we're called the Neo-Kantians, and scientific realism, various schools are called the philosophy of science that rebelled against metaphysics. And so, you know, science grew as a branch of metaphysics that, uh, you know, like the Royal Society, just like, okay, like, you know, we're theologians who think about truth and philosophy, and then we do experiments on the physical world to, you know, as engineers or how to create devices. But if you want answers to, like, questions of truth, uh, that's the realm of philosophy and, uh, you know, the, the mind. As opposed to, if you want to be able to predictable engineering devices, that's the realm of science. And uh, so then you have a rebellion against metaphysics, where you say that. Uh, uh, and what is metaphysics exactly? Me- metaphysics is. I mean, it goes back to the Greeks, and, and it'd be the the uh, the operation of. Um, the understanding of reality. I mean, there's a few words, epistemology and ontology and metaphysics, and they're all Greek precursors. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, like metaphysics would be like, what is space? What is time? What is thought? Uh, what's the nature between like empiricism and observation and and truth? So it's just like a question, like, well, what is truth? So mm-hmm. so science doesn't really say truth. You have an equation that makes predictions and works according to a formula. But it wasn't understood that it's not a truth claim. It's a mathematical prediction about uh, physical systems. And so situating 
science within the greater understanding would be the realm of metaphysics. That's where you have a Cartesian dualism. And uh, and so um, where they're called the Neo-Kantians and, uh, and then the Vienna Circle, who become the dominant physicist in uh, you know, Vienna and then come to America and uh, rebel against metaphysics, say metaphysics is no longer necessary. Sciences became um, so powerful that it's no longer you know, necessary to see, well, what does philosophy say about science? Does, that it was turning the other way around. What does science say about philosophy? So if you want to interpret, like when you first had like, you know, the beginning of uh, Newtonian mechanics and then the heat energy and the the conversion, mechanical equivalents of heat energy, electronic uh, computers, and all these various things, there's, there's, you need the philosophers, the, met, the metaphysicians to interpret what this stuff means. You can even look at that with like open AI and to say, well, what is truth? You say, well, so you want the, the, the great minds, the philosophers to make meaning out of this. And so the... Vienna Circle flips it back and says, like, no, no, the metaphysicians, uh, metaphysics and philosophers, how do we know they know what they're talking about? And, you know, as where science has proven predictable results, so now you want science informing philosophy and metaphysics. So, you know, say, well, if chat GPT is smarter than humans, what, you know, who's a better determiner of truth, the computer or machine. And then you just had the beginning of computers. Like this even happened before vacuum tubes. It's just, uh, you know, science was making such great predictions in mechanical devices or like the, you know, telephone or beginning of electrical devices mm -hmm. that they already were, were getting rid of philosophy. Mm. So this question, like, how do you situate science in terms of a larger philosophy? Um, like I was saying, does science actually have anything, like in the time of Descartes, where it just said science has nothing to inform us about about the soul of the Cartesian dualism. And so saying here, like, you know, now I'm already on the minority side where I'm saying that I believe in the soul. You know, that, and I, I believe, like, in like the Cartesian sense, that uh, science relatively has almost nothing to inform us about the soul. You could look at, like, you know, scripture, religion, or, you know, meditation, like we talk about psychometrics, that you can't measure the mind, you can only measure the output of mind. And so, you know, how do you know about the mind? We well, you know about mind from um, introspection. And so, well, how do you look at, uh, you know, so introspection is not scientific. The scientific method, there's no way to apply the scientific method, as we're talking about, like IQ, and say, well, we don't know how in the mechanism of intelligence works, although we know that there's correlation between hereditary and, and intelligence, even though we have no idea how the mechanism uh, works. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanted to go into. Like one, one thing I like, I found it fascinating myself because I didn't realize that it was such a big issue of the philosophy of science. And I didn't realize how unknown it is. Like you see, even here in Michigan, there's no major university that even has a major department in the philosophy of science. And, uh, you know, there's some big names like Thomas Kuhn and Karl Popper. And I go over and a lot of people yeah. like Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolution, your great book. I, I go over you know, the you know, like if you want looking for a recommendation of a you know, another book to go over, that's a great one. And you know, and uh, Karl Popper was part of uh, the Vienna Circle. Well, he was at the London School of Economics, and you know, I mean, he was the teacher of George Soros in the Open Society, and that also comes from applying the scientific method to uh, social sciences. So, just trying to 
put together and understand like how do we view science what's within the purview of science what's outside of the purview of science and this nature of you know what we call the multiple truth hypothesis what is truth and then you can say well you have scientific truths uh and that one of the one of the things i, I use to argue against uh evolution or atheism in general is just like basic statements where you know, like what what's the origin of ethics and morality how do you derive you know, God forbid that even something like murder, rape, and stealing is wrong according to evolution, evolutionary worldview. If, uh, if uh, you know, so you have like nihilism where you say, well, morality is just a preference. So, you know, from a dualistic point of view, it'd be, you know, the event, you know, call like an event that uh, if I physically do something, you know, like now we're, you know, drinking maple water or talking, but if it was some sort of event that was considered sinful like hurting another person you know god forbid take it to the the worst one like you know, murder and to say well there's a physical event uh, but then so to say there's a spiritual event and the morality the truth of the moral event is not a physical phenomenon it's a spiritual phenomenon and that's why i, I usually my understanding that's the deeper meaning of the buddhist proverb if a tree falls in the forest and no one hear it. <laughs> I've heard that, that before. That say, well, yeah. if someone commits a crime and there's no witnesses and the person has no remorse, do they get away with it? And to say, well, so if you say in the material realm, the event is uh, is gone. Like, yeah, they got away with it. But you say, like, no, there's karma. There was a spiritual imprint. There was a spiritual event. In the spiritual realm, there was a recording of what happened. And there's a truth value assigned to it mm -hmm. and uh you know so that's why i wanted to get into the philosophy of science to show um really the limits of science and then to go back to like you know like a uh, kant is that you know like i remember trying to read kant. i don't know if you ever read kant no no and uh, you know just thinking of uh you know like like iq and, and the various things like the introspection versus connecting what is truth what is uh, observable truth what is the power of introspection of something that you could think about in your own head and derive to something that you could, uh, uh, you demonstrate. So I thought it was, I mean, it's, it was fascinating how little people actually know about this. I mean, I assume like, you know, there's a lot of people who maybe like read Kant, um, but, uh, you know, even the history to, to know that science was created as a branch of theology and of metaphysics. And then there's like this reversion where now, you know, largely, if you want to talk about a philosophical philosophical truth, then you want to like studies or uh you know, what's the role of logic of uh you know, thought experiments versus like studies or or trying to apply the scientific method to uh social sciences, to, to history, to uh psychology mm -hmm. and then to like morality and ethics. So that's uh you know, and I'm an engineer, so it's you know, one thing it's interesting in uh you know, may maybe make you a better scientist. It won't necessarily make you a better scientist because you know, scientism is, is more about, you know, engineering is more about being able to do things. Mm -hmm. So there's also I also hope to get into the philosophy of engineering and technology, oh, cool. which uh, ironically is uh, almost non-existent. That like the philosophy of uh, you know science and then what is the relationship between technology, engineering, and science, and is there a, is there a philosophy of technology? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, you're an engineer, I guess. You're a technologist. But I don't know if you, if it's just practical to it, you know, just like you want to 
produce results that uh, people find useful or or now like you know the economics i talked about with Wyatt actually about the biggest problem i was trying to explain my understanding the biggest problem between the u.s and china is patent law copyright law Mm. and uh, you know china largely not respecting copyright law and you know so the you know like technology you're gonna make a patent then you'll be able to economically benefit from it and it's your property and then you know, maybe someone in china figures out what you're doing and then just makes the same thing you did at a cheaper price and why should they cut you in on it mm-hmm. you know earlier when you said uh what is truth that reminds me of the conversation uh in the in the gospels pontius pilate asks jesus the same question i believe he asks him you know, what is truth it's a to me it's a very powerful passage to me um and anyway, just as an aside um you don't really use the word truth in science right okay even yeah. like theory uh hypothesis theory law and uh you know because truth is a concept of theology and philosophy or logic even mm-hmm. um however not science mm. and is that like where did you talk about in your one video about Karl Popper and I, I don't know exactly his, uh, his views on it, but it's something like theories should be falsifiable. Like you're never seeking truth. You're seeking to falsify whatever you're thinking of to make it less wrong. It, does that kind of summarize his view? Well, that's what he's most notable now known for in terms of the development of the scientific method, adding, falsifiability mm-hmm. in that uh, you know historically the scientific method did not necessarily have this element of falsifiability you, know, you had the hypothesis and the testing and the replicability third party uh, 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 but to actually you know that it should be falsifiable uh, I mean maybe some people thought about that he implemented that that should be part of the scientific method and his claim that stronger theories are, falsifiable that uh you know so now you say like you know one of the arguments evolution is not falsifiable or i I call the modern bailey fallacy where there's element evolution is a umbrella theory for a whole bunch of sub theories that has you know somewhat like a theology cosmology Mm. like natural selection do you mean something yeah so something like natural i mean evolution in terms of the larger theory that uh you know of the origins of of, uh species in uh that uh life arising from non-life inorganic material and then uh, simpler life forms evolving to more complex life forms, including us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there's relatively a whole bunch of sub-theories, information theory, genetics, uh, uh, natural selection. They'd be like, well, natural selection repeated over and over again over billions of years. Uh, but, but that's just one of the elements. And But you would say, well, natural selection might be falsifiable, uh, you know, most engineering theories are falsifiable because they have, uh, you know, they're based on differential equation. Like I said, uh, Galileo was really the first to have mathematical expressions of uh, physical laws that made predictions, although he didn't have necessarily the concept of universal laws. That came from Descartes, but Descartes incorrectly formulated the physics. So it was Newton who first correctly formulated 
universal mathematical laws of physics, and now all engineering, usually unified through conservation of energy, but uh, in any form of engineering, you're going to have usually you know, differential equations, some sort of thing that will make a clear prediction about the state in the future, mm-hmm. that if it's not that state in the future, it's been falsified. Mm. And so you know, Popper adds that strong element to uh, scientific theories and, and you know, the claim that uh, uh, falsifiability should be an element of science and the stronger the, the correlation between the falsibility of the theory and, I don't know what to call it, like its truth or its value, and uh, in, in preferring things to be formulated in a method that could be falsified. Okay. That, uh, you know, if you had any hypothesis, even, you know, even if it was now in social science or history or something that you could, you know, have this idea, can you formulate it in a way that's falsifiable? And then can you admit that if it's falsified even in one instance, that the theory is at least, you know, the, the truth value, so to say, it's not, it's not true. If it could, you know, even just one instance of falsifiability and so that changed the way that uh, science was formulated, and that's why you know, Popper's largely a household name today. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you touched on this earlier too. These paradigm shifts in science, and uh, that's more Thomas Kuhn and his structure of the scientific revolution. Oh, okay. And is there is there two competing ideas on how? things progress there's this you know paradigm shift which i i don't know if i'm gonna get this 100 percent right but like when i think of a paradigm shift there's like a massive change in like a short period of time versus there's the other side where somebody might say oh any sort of progress is just cumulative and gradual like little baby steps over time and i'm kind of reminded of a quote that i've heard thrown around uh, quite a bit from I think it's actually from uh, Vladimir Lenin, where he said there's sometimes uh, months go by where nothing happens, and then sometimes there's like days go by where months happen. So sometimes (laughs) nothing will happen for a while, and all of a sudden one day a lot happens. I don't know if maybe that's entirely applicable, but are, are those the two like competing schools of thought? It's either huge changes in short period of time or just gradual changes in science? Yes, I go into this in depth and, in, in, uh, you know, I, I actually mostly reading from the Stanford Encyclopedia. These articles are, are you know, trying to explain some of these articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so there's the history of the Neocantians who are saying, like, you know, we could never know the truth. It's a journey towards truth. But, you know, science as it advances, even though it changes, you could somewhat call it truth. To uh, you, know, the formulation that neo Kantians lead into uh, the Vienna Circle, like Hemholtz is considered a neo Kantian in like uh, the late 1800s. The majority of scientists are neo Kantians until the Vienna School, which leads into quantum mechanics. And Popper is uh, he ends up disagreeing, but he's offshoot of the Vienna Circle, is where Kuhn is in America. I think it's 1965 that. Kuhn publishes his Structure of Scientific Revolution, and Popper actually organized a conference trying to debunk it. So, I mean, they're you know they're contemporaries, but they didn't necessarily agree with each other. But uh, you know, so the Thomas Kuhn's you know it's probably the single well 
well-known, well-read uh, concept in the philosophy of science. And you know, comes to this level of the question of truth. So you say the paradigm means that we don't know the truth for a lot of scientific details, but you have a dominant theory. And people work within the dominant paradigm because it has the most explanatory power. And generally, you know, there might be social dynamics or cultural or whatever where, where you know, like basically everyone works within the dominant paradigm. And then a new theory comes around that is different than the dominant paradigm and it revolutionizes the way everyone does science because it demonstrates that the, the old paradigm, um, I mean, it doesn't necessarily happen to have it like all at once, but sometimes it could happen all at once because usually the dominant paradigm explains certain phenomena very well and then there's other phenomenon that it struggles to explain. And, you know, that might be areas of investigation where we would call normal science is where you're just building on the dominant paradigm and expanding it to explain more and more phenomenon. And then at some point, might hit a, a a block where it's shown that you can't expand the old theory to explain certain phenomenon. And then a new theory is necessary to come to explain that phenomenon, and that may displace the old theory, and that would be the paradigm shift, you know, from like Newtonian mechanics oh, gotcha. to okay. uh, you know, Einstein or if it was like evolution, um, you know, it could be open AI. It could be a paradigm shift where just the, uh, you know, like, I mean, for so from an objective level, if you're a scientist and you asked, uh, you know, so to say like physicalism, that uh, if you asked objectively someone, they say like, no, we, we do not have a solution to the heart problem of consciousness. We don't even have a clear working model of how the brain produces consciousness. Well, however, that's the dominant paradigm of basically almost everyone working in consciousness studies is working on the level of trying to show how consciousness arises, emerges from the brain. Mm -hmm. Even though there's a lot of problems, there's a lot of phenomena that can't be explained, there's no working theory. So that if there was you know, just a, a turn where there's a new theory and then be like, well, there's no more hope. Let's not even go down that route anymore. And that would be you know, the paradigm shift. So Kuhn is not necessarily like Popper, where he's not adding something. He's just talking to like, you know, like the historical process in, in you because know, uh, this gets into the Neo-Kantianism where, where, you know, there's the internal view of, of the historiography of science and the external view of the historiography of science. The internal is looking at as purely factual truths, one building off of and the, the one another that, is completely independent of the people in the places where it was discovered. And, you know, the external view says, like, well, no, I mean, there's, science is not independent of the culture, and there's a lot of, you know, cultural baggage or other things that are, you know, thrown into scientific theories that are not purely one idea building off the other. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so if you're looking, science is the building off of pre off the knowledge of previous generations. You don't start from scratch. Mm -hmm. You start with... Uh, in there, and you start with the whole gamut of the current state of knowledge, which includes some things that are extremely well demonstrated and understood, and some things that are partially demonstrated and understood. And then there's the vast area of the unknown. 
and so the, the pop, uh, sorry, Kuhn says the general method is to build off of and try to explain the unknown based off of the accepted theories of the past. And very rarely does someone propose a new theory. Almost all theories are uh, you're just expansions of old theories. And, and so that's where the paradigm comes in, where uh, you know, someone actually comes up with a new theory, and then the new theory could actually even displace the old theory. And then he gives uh, you know, a bunch of uh, historic examples. You know, it, it could be you know, a lot of examples like in heat and uh, combustion, like the caloric uh, you know, theory of heat or... Uh, you know things like uh, flow, uh, vitalism in biology, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, um, the ether, uh, phlogiston, or something like that, uh, and even uh, big names. I think even Einstein believed in ether, and uh, you know like, like phlogiston or whatever they call the you know, ether theories. Yeah, that that was you know, basically all physics operated. Uh, you know even Leibniz, uh, uh, Descartes. You know that there had to be this ether. And uh, that scientific until the Michelson Morley experiment, if you remember, that I've heard that, of it. Yeah. that you know tries to demonstrate it was actually trying to demonstrate to measure the ether. So it was like you know these based on the movement of the Earth and like lasers and mirrors that we would measure the ether. But it turned out that uh, it gave the exact same measurement no matter what, no matter how like the direction the mirrors were spinning or the you know the Earth or anywhere the planet gave the same measure, and it, it, that that kind of showed that there probably isn't an ether even though that was like in the 1880s or 90s i think it took like another 30 years till people completely gave up on the ether and then you know like einstein and, and various things but that that would have been you know basically everybody in physics was trying to develop their theory based on the ether and then you start having like oh mickelson morley there's probably no ether but what's the alternative? There is no alternative, so people are still working on it until you have, like, you know, Einstein space-time and a new paradigm, quantum mechanics, and, and uh, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot, as I said, Popper actually was a opponent of Kuhn and organized a whole conference of uh, 1965, Feyerbend and Lakatov, the big names in the philosophy of science who all wrote criticisms of, of Kuhn's, but that's the most popular you know, he was at Harvard, and it's one of the most popular, well-read, understood uh, theories. And there's a lot of elements to understand. You know, like in, the, in the scientific field, to, you know, what what do we know? What don't we know? What might we discover in the future? And what will that say about what we think we know? Or you know, some things that are you know, this question of truth that I'm getting at, like to say, generally, truth is not not a word that's used in science. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you. Uh, one last question, David, and it was something we kind of brought up earlier. A lot of the content that I have done has been of this self-help realm and like personal development books, uh, particular like I have done. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, The Four Agreements. Uh, I did on my channel, The Alchemist, which uh, I would I would care to categorize. It's a story, but I would categorize it as personal development, self-help, um, with winning in mind, uh, the one thing. And I know earlier you were saying that you, or I forget if you said this, you use like religion as self-help or you use like the Bible or the old Testament as self-help. Um, well, I, I'm big into self-help also. I just say that self-help within a theological framework 
So oh, gotcha. In, in Judaism, you had what was called the Musser movement, which uh, you could phrase as self-help or character refinement, um, but it's written in a theological framework where, you know, maybe I'll give an obligation to God or or like a you know, sinful uh, nature of your interactions with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, although a lot of it is the exact same because, I mean, the goal is um, character refinement. And to say, you know, cause I guess I'm more, uh, you know, scholarly. So uh, I like theoretical models, studies. So I don't have any problem with self-help, but, uh, you know, in my youth, um, in fact, I went over, one of the first videos I did was uh, an ancient, uh, a thousand-year-old Hebrew text called Duties of the Heart, which you could call a self-help book, and another one, uh, Path of the Righteous, like 300 years ago. And, you know, I, I went to Israel and I studied in seminary and I, I did these self-help textbooks mm-hmm. and you call them character refinement. And there's also statements of law where you, um, I, I, well, actually another area of research in psychology very interests me is uh, identity formation or self. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, conceptually, if you say that there, there's who I am now and then there could be an idealistic behavior. So if it's set by religion, to say, well, there's a code, a standard that a man should operate that's defined by religious leaders, and what you should do is transform yourself from whoever you are now into the ideal standard. So, you know, from the Jewish text or the Hindu text, and, and like from that perspective, I got a hundred books on self-help, mm-hmm. but they're usually in this formation of what is this ideal behavior pattern that people should operate according to. And then how do you transform yourself from you know the the natural human beast or unrefined man into this ideal state? Okay. And then you might also have like you know like you know like the Kabbalah of business, the Kabbalah of sales, or you know like Hinduism or something that that would have some you know more practical. But that would generally be frowned upon in terms of pure um, utilitarian because you know, usually be like well you know, the goal is to serve God. The goal is to be a better person. The goal is not to make more sales. The goal is not like how to win friends and influence people. And that would even be it's a good book. Degenerate. I'm actually I remember speaking about that with my rabbi and mentioning that he said like, you know, it said like the Musser movement, you know, like it's ninety five percent of the same as like the, the Jewish Musser books and how to win friends and influence people. But uh, you know, the difference how to win win friends and influence people has it doesn't focus on God in a moral standard. You're just like, okay, well, you want to be successful, you want to have a bunch of friends, you want to get people to follow your way, as opposed to some sort of objective moral standard. I see. And, and like higher goals. So like the goal of, you know, it's like how to win friends and influence people is more, I mean, these days also I say on the internet, like you have like a, um, pickup artists or, or dating coaches or something like that. Yeah. And and so you're like, like how to make this. So it's not, you could use it for good or for evil. And and the saying that maybe the techniques are true and maybe they're factual is saying that, uh, that you, you could use them for good or evil. So in the sense of a religious book, there's always the constant warnings about trying to transform yourself into a good person, not just a, uh, achieve your desires. So that's generally mm. um, why I don't like self. I mean, I'm not opposed to self-help. I think it benefits a lot of people, 
but you know then in the sense also like like the goal should be to be you become a good person as opposed to self-improvement is neutral mm. and and it's a, like uh i think a lot of times self-improvement self-help books are i mean if you want to even put them like theologically demonic in the sense that most people are using them for what would even be counter to what might be considered a good person you know, like how to get ahead in business how to uh you know how to win as opposed to uh you know the the and, and there's various levels and then also because i'm more academic you say motivation comes from the inside and so uh you know if you just read psychological theories like i was mentioning if you have a model for how the mind works or how human behavior works and then self-help within it as opposed to just best practices of uh, you know what mm -hmm. works and saying like you know here's a bunch of techniques that have been proven to work and so you just try them as opposed to some sort of larger sociological psychological um framework of them mm -hmm. but i mean you know if, if it works and you know like i mean generally I say it's probably a good thing that you're, you're taking uh you know if you believe in character refinement you believe that it's possible to uh change yourself um and then you just think uh I put it back to you because you're doing these videos, and mm -hmm. I watch watch some of them. Like, uh, you know, what's your framework for self improvement? In the sense, is it, or would you separate it? You're saying like, well, I read these self improvements because I want to make more money, I want to have bigger networks or, you know, bigger uh, business, and I don't have a greater full picture of like a transformation into becoming a better person. That's that's a really good point, and I. I used to be the type of person who just wanted to make a lot of money. Like that's was just the ultimate goal. But I think what I found is without anything, money for the sake of money or replace money with anything else. Success you know, winning. Success winning, you know, just to keep score like that long-term, I don't think it's very healthy because ultimately there's always as uh, Qui-Gon Jinn said in Star Wars, there's always a bigger fish and it could potentially lead to your downfall trying to just simply one-up people for the sake of one-upping people. And I totally get where you're coming from and that's kind of how I see self-help is what is the greater purpose behind you wanting to improve yourself, get a better job, uh, get a bit bigger network. Um, and for, for me, I see it as in the end, ultimately it's about for me, at least uh, a legacy. And I feel like, Oh, if I improve myself, refine my character, you know, have a, have successes in business and what have you, that it increases my chances of, you know, have meeting somebody, having progeny and then expanding my legacy towards the next generation versus if I don't do those things, not to say it's impossible, but it just makes it a lot harder. So I, that's kind of like my underlying, uh, the thing that drives that stuff. Yeah. I was speaking to Luke Ford the other day and, and um, you know, Hollywood, I stream with him sometimes and mm -hmm. convert Orthodox Judaism from Seventh-day Adventism He's written a few books, Interesting Character. Um, and he's big into 12-step programs and self-help 
and so I was having this exact same conversation, mm-hmm. and so I was asking him, you know, how much of your life do you take instruction? And and so he said probably like one percent. And I, I mean, he's already in his mid fifties, and I'm in my mid forties. I would say probably like I probably spend ten percent of my life taking instruction. Mm. And so if you're talking about personality, like you know, in terms of like you know how to be a better person, how to uh, or or you know, you take it as like being insulted, like or like I've spoken to you an hour or so, and you, like you want to know what your problem is, and like a list of all the you know the the factors that that's like your personality defects that I've noticed. And like, but, like, but, but as a friend, seriously, like you might want to consider changing these things mm-hmm. and saying like, well, generally like no one likes that, even if they you know, could be considered helpful, you know, saying like, oh, just, you know, by the way, like, you know, your house is a mess or, or like, you know, <laughs> this is wrong and wrong and wrong. And, yeah. you know, you should thank me for correcting you as opposed to learning somewhere, you just take instruction and saying like, okay, I'm sure there's, you know, you're, you're an accomplished man has a lot of skills. There's probably hundreds or thousands of hours of instruction that you could give me you know computers or technology you know like you set you did the setup and if i wanted to learn how to do this you could you know like uh i would probably be best to be like 95 to 99 percent me listening and you just explain like do this then do that and this is how it works and then you know at the end maybe i would know how to do certain things and then human interaction working that way mm-hmm. where you're you're regularly taking instruction and so, like, like self-help and, you know, like, okay, we're both engineers, and so I'm sure you probably constantly take instructions where you just got to learn how to do oh, yeah. do some software tool, uh, you know, some program or something like that. Oh, yeah. And it's just purely someone explaining and, and you listening. Or, you know, now if you're, you know, you've reached management that you're doing a lot of explaining that people listening to you, like, you know, like say your, your most popular videos, the Java strip videos where there's thousands, tens of thousands of people who just sat there and hung on every word of yours. Uh, and they might not even care who you are or anything about it. They just <laughs> want to learn how to code and you had a good video. So they hung on every word of yours to yeah. learn how. Um, so if you're, if you're taking that to your personal life, as I want to be a better person and I'm going to take instruction on how to be a better person and, you know, so I, I use the expression self improvement works better in a group. So you just read a book on self improvement, and you'd be like technical, and just be like, well, you know, learning how to operate a machine. You yeah. read a you know book on it, but sometimes having someone you know explain, but you know saying like character refinement, self improvement, because you know the nature of perception. Like I don't perceive myself, I perceive you. You don't perceive yourself, you perceive me. So you know even just meeting me very quickly, you could probably you know, point out a whole list of uh, defects that I have that I, that I, I did not necessarily notice myself just due to the nature of uh external perception and uh you know so taking instruction from life coaching learning from others be willing to accept rebuke is you know extremely difficult but important in that extent like self-help and i say it's like chat gpt you know it's neutral it's like i mean god forbid i think one of the issues it's like well what if someone asked chat gpt how to commit a crime mm. and the same way. So self-help is your general. So like if you have the religious framework and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to help you, but I'm, I'm a religious person. Mm. And it's because, you know, because of God and because you're trying to become a righteous person. And, uh, you know, as opposed to self-help is generally neutral. And, uh, you know, it's like, like chat GPT. It's a tool that could be used either to help people or to hurt people. 
and you know being a, a functional person being able good with good with people mm-hmm. uh, you know all of these things are you know, neutral and so that's yeah. uh i'm not even giving a warning like i said because you know i believe in higher powers in the sense just like you know chat yeah. gpt so i'm not like warning on like the dangers of self-improvement i just make that point that you know self-improvement and self-help generally is neutral you know as opposed to the religious perspective you would take that angle is saying like but like it's not neutral saying like like uh you know that these are powers and you have to keep in mind um you know, either you know god or some greater good or some sort of like you know method to say like well you know legacy well what about helping other people what about making the world That's a better true. place or or these yeah. various things that uh you know it's neutral you don't have to you could you could uh you know get ahead you know simply purely out of selfish motives or you might be giving to you know, your wife and your yeah. children or uh, yes i just say that that's why i prefer uh theology to it but but i mean generally said like like uh most of what i do is neutral mm-hmm. like especially professionally you know saying like uh, we exchange knowledge um yeah I, I like to preach everyone likes to preach everyone likes to you know have their worldview uh but but at the end of the day like you know even if uh, a, a person listens to the preaching if you succeed and you impart the skill upon them, they could do with it as they see fit and as they please in a neutral way that could, you know, according to your system, uh, like, you know, how we met through Wyatt and, you know, yeah. the, war, the war in Ukraine or something like that. Like, you know, it's neutral and, you know, both sides are, um, I mean, you, you could take a view of good or bad or who the good guys who you want to win. Um, but, you know, from the technical, it's, you know, just neutral, just the facts, what's happening, what are the weapons, what's the day-to-day on on the basis, uh, you know, even like, you know, God forbid, the casualties, how many people are dying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to assign a moral judgment to it is a, you know, it gets back to the dualism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool, David. I, that's definitely something I'm going to take into account now. Um I appreciate you doing this, David. We are, wow, we're almost at two hours. Um, this I stream is, for hours. People know like streaming, like streaming generally, like yeah. long form content. So like some of my conversations, like actually just myself, like a, like a, yeah, I had a streaming partner and we went you know, a week in review and we were like mm-hmm. five, six hours. And, and then she yeah. had a, she was in New Zealand, had a, a schedule change because it would do a Sunday night and it would be Monday for her. Okay. And, uh, um, but now I just talk like myself for this for like five hours. I'm gonna see my content. It was just, just me, you know, if uh, just me myself, you know, rambling for like five hours. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good sign in, in, in saying that you know, like conversations like this, yeah, you know, can go forever. Though you know, a lot of times that you know, saying life is short and you gotta <laughs> set your priorities, and then you have a, uh, you know, clearly like what's the purpose of the conversation? What are you trying to get out of it? And you know, time to find, but. Uh, even streaming, you'll find that uh, you know a lot of times, uh, like you watch Lex Friedman or something like that. Oh, some, yeah. some shows are like one Lex. hour, some shows are five hours. Yeah, <laughs> I like Lex too. Shout out to Lex, uh, David. Just one last thing for people who want to get connected with you. Uh, I know you're on Twitter, the YouTube channel. Um, what's your Twitter handle again? I am Duvid with four O's. Um, Duvid is just the Yiddish of David. A lot of people, like in Yiddish circles, like Brooklyn or whatever, you would just spell it D-U-V-I-D. However, you know, D-U-V, there's a lot of duvids. 
you know, I mean, it's not that many duvids, but there's enough duvids that duvid was already taken. So that's how I got duvid with the four O's. Um, on Twitter, I think I'm Reb Duvid with the, you know, Reb, uh, kind of like rabbi, but it's not like a, it's a diminutive, just means kind of like a, of a, of like a male, like a Reb, Reb Duvid, but I'm, I'm Duvid on YouTube. I'm okay. on, uh, across, I have Discord, uh, all social media. I actually have eBay. I sell books on eBay. I'm also Duvid on eBay. Uh, my name's David Kelton. Um, generally, I'm an imp- introvert. I was saying like Myers Brigham, INTP. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Uh, but uh, yeah, I like conversation, especially people who have these common interests, which are relatively pretty rare. As I said, I got into streaming because it's near impossible to talk about these things in regular life. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe you know, if we met in business or something, maybe you could bring up these common interests and we'd like grab a bite and mention it. But like, usually like, time is money. And yeah. people are busy, so that's why I got on social media, largely looking for people that uh, you know, want to talk about these things. So if you find me on uh, any of the social media, mostly YouTube, every Sunday night I stream, and uh, you know you could join in the conversation or make a comment. And you know if you're local, like uh, especially intellectual or interested in some of these topics, uh, you know we could meet up and you know, grab a bite or or you know, have a conversation and. Uh, um, you check out my library to uh, you know, borrow a book or something like that, and so yeah, you know, I appreciate Chris. Uh, you're, you're reaching out because, like I said, like I did this largely to most of the people I stream with are international, mm-hmm. because common interest and in, in it's it's very difficult to even good friends, even family, like to you know you, you know, even think my parents or something like you know I'm not sure if you you get that like you're just like I'm reading this book and it's really interesting. It's near impossible to move normal social interaction into that. And so that's why I found on, it's actually somewhat impersonal because even like practically, are we going to like get together and discuss a book? I mean, we might, but it, but it's more practical doing it over social media. Uh-huh. And so that's largely what I created my social media for was to uh, fulfill my intellectual um, you know, desires to meet people to talk about subject-oriented topics. Very cool. And I, I appreciate uh, the content that you put out. Uh, great stuff, a lot of great information out there. And I've le- I've certainly have learned a lot by watching your content. Thank yeah, you. You for- too. Yeah, I've watched oh, some of your content you. and, you know, definitely um, when I started streaming, I said, you know, that you wrapped this up because time is ticking. But, uh, you know, I, I got to the point where you know, like I was religious and the rabbis kind of like, don't watch TV. Like, you know, time, <laughs> time is short, you know, like entertainment in general. I talked about laughter and said so like, take life seriously, like read a book, learn something. So, uh, you know, I just start pounding through, you know, like I, I don't even have my TV connected here. I occasionally watch news on uh, YouTube mm-hmm. and I pounded through intellectual content. I took like hundreds of courses on edX, like the MIT open online. I, oh, yeah. I, I like, I could list like, 20 YouTube, like Lex Friedman, I, you know, I watch almost half of his content and like tens of YouTube pages, uh, even like Wyatt, uh, but, uh, you're just more training how to updates that I watch constantly. And then I got to a point where I was like, yeah, I think I, I think I know more about certain subjects than the content out there. So I started producing, uh, you know, my own content and, you know, so maybe that's the level you got out there if you're, you know, just curious and you're, you know, you're, you're watching other content and then you start to see your place in the world where, where it was like, well, I've been thinking quite a bit about this subject and I've, I've looked at almost all the content that I could find on the internet 
and consumed yeah. it, and now I think you know, maybe I have something to add to it. No, that that is kind of how the YouTube channel birthed was me watching other YouTube videos of people explaining their takes on popular books. And that's how I got started and started out with a book you you might be familiar with, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor, Victor Frankl. Frankl. Yeah. That's, it started from that book in 2020 and then, yeah, still going strong today. And then me interviewing people who I think are really cool and have a lot of value. So I, I appreciate you doing this today. Um, I will include links to all your social media, the YouTube channel. I'll include it in the episode description for people to check it out. If you're Metro Detroit, oh yeah, I do engineering conferences. So I, I usually cool. go to engineering shows at the Suburban Collection Place, Huntington, um, you know, like battery show, automotive testing, foam show. Uh, next week is the Automate Conference, and they got, you know, like some of the ro robots, uh, biggest, you know, latest technology on display, and I'll walk around kind of like ramble and give my understanding of, uh, you know, the current state of the technology. And I think, you know, Detroit, we're a manufacturing place, and, you know, so we're both engineers. Yeah. So if, if, if you're local and like that kind of content, or even if you didn't know, even know they existed, uh, you know, that these conferences exist, like I love these conferences, and, uh, you know, just the reading material and the companies and seeing the latest uh, gadgets. But as anyone listening to this local in Metro Detroit, uh, that's also something I do in my content is go to you know, engineering conferences, suburban collection place in Huntington, and I'll, you know, stream and do a video of some of the cool displays and, uh, you know, give a little ramble. Very cool. Well, I, I appreciate it, David. You guys heard it here first. Thank you again, and everybody out there, thank you very much for listening. My name is Chris. This has been Chitash. Take care, everybody.